This morning's reading may be found on page 1134 of your Bibles. Paul's letter to the Romans, taken from chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, 
but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Moving on to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is the word of the Lord. Our preacher this morning is one of our lay readers, David Bender-Samuel. But before he reads the gospel and preaches, we're going to sing again from Mission Praise, number 162. Number 162. Let's have the gospel reading before I preach. Do sit down. You'll find it in Matthew 13. And we're going to read from 44 to 46. Uh, That's uh, page 980 in your pew Bibles. 980. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value... He went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. I'm aware that this morning we have a lot to get through um, and it's sort of all meat and no veg. I'm also aware that when I try and hurry, I sometimes am difficult to hear by some people. Um, at the beginning of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, I don't know if you remember, the, the, the coxes have to have their hands up until they're ready to go, don't they? And then when both hands go down, off they go. And uh, it did occur to me that I ought, I ought to ask some members of the congregation to put their hands up if they need me to stop uh, and slow down, but I don't think we'll do that. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word And uh, we want you to speak to us from it. Father, we come to seek 
understanding from things that are divine, from things that are difficult to understand. And so we ask now that you will give us clarity of thought and word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the third in our series on prayer. Uh, Michael Green took us through prayer to the Father. And uh, Sean took us last week through prayer through the Son. Today we are looking at prayer in the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the function and role of the Spirit in our praying. And we'll have a look and try and answer two questions. What does praying in the Spirit mean? And how can we do it better? Now before I answer those, or before we try and answer those questions, uh, I want to say two things about prayer itself, which I hope uh, will help us appreciate the place of the Spirit in it. And the first thing to say is that prayer in the Spirit is spiritual breathing. If salvation is our birth, then praying is the breathing that keeps us alive. When God gifts us life, he also gifts us the means of sustaining it through the gift of the Holy Spirit and through prayer. And just as we constantly breathe physically to sustain ourselves, we must constantly breathe spiritually. And it is prayer that is the means of our spiritual breathing. And just as we find physically that exercises that force us to breathe more deeply lead to greater physical health, so we find that the exercise of prayer increases our spiritual health. So that is the first point we need to make at the outset. Prayer is the Christian's breath of life. Second point is prayer in the Spirit is assurance of salvation. Uh, if you would turn back to the Romans 8 chapter, you may well find it helpful to keep it open. In that chapter, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that we have a whole chapter on the assurance of salvation. He wrote two whole books just on this one chapter. So if you think I'm going to be preaching for a long time this morning, you should have gone to one of his sermons. The point is, though, that it begins with this. There is no condemnation, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends, uh, in verse 39, uh, 38 and 39, with this. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus our Lord. The chapter brings, uh, begins by saying there's no condemnation and it ends by saying there's no separation. It is a chapter on the assurance of salvation. And the first 17 verses that Michael read to us this morning deal with the fact that the Spirit provides us with this ultimate assurance of salvation. It is life. In verse 2, the law of the spirit of life set me free. And in verse 6, the sinful mind, uh, sorry, the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life. The spirit is life. 
Its presence is our guarantee of salvation. It works out our sanctification and prepares us for the glory that lies ahead. The assurance continues in verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies, is a witness to our spirit, with our spirit, that we are God's children. And then in verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God with Christ. Paul then does a little detour for a few verses, 18 to 25, about suffering and hope. And we pick up this theme of the assurance of salvation again in verse 26. And it begins in the same way, or the AV translates it, likewise. And so it continues, it picks up the role of the Spirit in the work of grace in us. So we can read that passage from verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies that we are God's children and heirs to God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans that words cannot express. So what is our greatest need in the spiritual journey as children of God? It must be communication with the Father. And prayer is that communication. So Paul wishes to assure his readers that the work of the Spirit is present there too in prayer. So when we pray in the Spirit, the first and most important thing we know is that we pray as saved children of God. This is the jumping off point for prayer. Because we pray in the Spirit the Spirit given when God's grace acts on us, we are presented as righteous. The Spirit given when we experience salvation is the Spirit that is in us and in our prayers. Because we pray in that Spirit, we are recognized by God as his own. So prayer is our spiritual breathing and it is our assurance of salvation. Now, let us have a look at what in the Spirit means. And I'm sorry to have to start negatively, uh, but some people think, and it has been said, that speaking in, uh, praying in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. And it's not. It may at time to time include that, but praying in the Spirit is a state of being and practice. To equate the two is what I believe logicians call a category confusion. It would be the same, say, as equating weather and rain. They're not the same. One is a function of the other. The statement, rain is weather, is true. Rain is always weather. But the statement, weather is rain, is not true. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, it might be here and certainly has been for the last 12 months. Speaking in tongues is praying in the Spirit. But praying in the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. In Ephesians 6, 18, Paul writes this, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. You see, praying in the Spirit is supposed to be a constant. It's the context of our prayer life. Speaking in tongues is an occasional manifestation of it. So, having got that 
hopefully uh, put to one side. Let's have a look at the context of these verses 26 and 27, which deal with the Spirit in our prayer life. Now, the context is that Paul has been talking in those first 17 verses of the uh, spirit-flesh dichotomy. The spirit is life, the flesh is death. So the first thing that praying in the spirit means is that we are praying in life. And in that sense, praying in the spirit for the Christian is a natural state. The spirit inhabits us when we are redeemed. It is God's gift to us at salvation. It is the proof of God's life in us and remains and inhabits our prayers too. This is not some special charismatic state that we have to get into. It comes with the territory, as it were. And in this case, the territory is the kingdom of heaven to which we become citizens at salvation. So the question then, I suppose, is, is it possible for Christians not to pray in the Spirit, to pray in the flesh, if you like, to pray in death? Well, Jesus actually called the Pharisees out on it, didn't he? He called them whitened sepulchres at one point. And their problem was motivation. And it is possible for that to be a challenge for us too. We can pray motivated by the wrong things, religious ritual or formula showing off, legalism, or even carnality in our desires, selfishness. And if we do, it is possible we will block the work of the Spirit. We will be ignoring the work of the Spirit's life in us. What does the actual word in mean? It's the Greek word en, E-N, and it occurs 2,700 times in the New Testament. So you can imagine it carries a variety of meanings as a preposition. It's used in this particular phrase, in the Spirit, on a number of places. In Jude 20, for instance, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Ephesians 6 passage we have just read. And pray at all times in the Spirit. And in this context, in Romans 8, and in those contexts, N can mean the means by which something is done. Or the enabling of. Or possibly under the cover of. Or even with the help of. So that preposition gives us a clear idea of enabling, power and facilitation. So if we pray to the Father through the Son, we pray with the facilitation and enabling of and by the means of the Holy Spirit. That is what in the Holy Spirit means. Now what does this mean in practical terms? Well, John Piper expresses it wonderfully when he wrote this. And I'm just going to read what he wrote. The best brief statement I have found of what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit goes like this. It means to pray that the Holy Spirit is the moving and guiding power. The key words there are moving and guiding. In other words, when you pray in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is moving you to pray. That is, 
He is the one who motivates and enables and energizes your prayer. And when you pray in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is guiding you how to pray and what to pray for. So to pray in the Holy Spirit is to be moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. Why do we need that power and guidance? I don't know about you, uh, but I find prayer sometimes excruciatingly difficult. And that's both in the general and in the particular. In general terms, I find it incredibly difficult to be to, to capture the idea of being human in the face of Almighty God. It presents certain problems. In fact, I suspect I have problems understanding the problems. It's the nature of being human in the, in, in the presence of the divine. But in particular, also, I can get tied up with uh, what to actually pray in the particular. I struggle to know where my agenda, my selfishness begins and ends, where God's heart is actually what is happening. So if you have those struggles, if you are anything like that, then of course the answer to the question, why do we need this power and guidance, is pretty obvious. And Paul addresses it here in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. We have a weakness when it comes to prayer. Now, this weakness is not one particular thing. It's a state. It is the state that gives rise to all our other infirmities. It is the state of being human, being weak and ignorant and earthbound and mortal, and being human, trying to be in communication with the perfection that is God. That is indeed an infirmity. And it's essentially a spiritual infirmity, although, of course, there are physical elements to it. Now, the problem this weakness creates is, well, the NIV uh, puts it that it is not knowing what to pray for. The authorized translates it like that too. The RSV and the New English Bible and other translation translates it slightly differently. Not really knowing how to pray is how they put it. So on the one hand, it's not knowing how to pray. On the other hand, it's not knowing what to pray for. The, uh, in the Greek, the word what in that sentence, we do not know what we ought to pray for, has the definite article. So you could actually translate it, the what. So it's possible to translate that uh, sentence, we do not know the what to pray for as it is befitting. So it can be seen as both. It can be seen as we struggle how to pray and what to pray for. And I'm sure you can think of occasions when you've had both problems. I can think of many, many occasions. I have some now that strike both of those situations. So we have an inbuilt spiritual problem. It's sort of like a respiratory problem, if you like. And you don't need a doctor to tell you how Uh, important it is to deal with respiratory problems. We do not know how to pray. So, the power and guidance on offer from the Spirit are not simply there to add value to our prayers. They are an essential mechanism by which we can accomplish them. 
to use as an analogy. If our spiritual journey uh, is uh, sort of the same as driving a car, um, the spirit, the work of the spirit in our prayer is not about having a higher octane fuel or a more up-to-date sat-nav or roadmap. It's about the installation of the engine and the building of the road on which we are to drive. So we need this power and guidance. And the assurance that comes with it, of course, is in verse 27. The Spirit gives voice to our inarticulate yearnings for communion with God. God talks to God. The what to pray for and the how to pray is taken up by the Spirit and made good for God. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It means that we are in the natural state of being a Christian. It means that we are praying in the risen life of Christ and in the power of and under the guidance of the indwelling Spirit. Now our second question was, how can we exercise prayer in the Spirit? How can we do it and hopefully do it better? I think the first thing is to remember, and and before I start, I should say, of course, that I'm very conscious that I am someone who is struggling with this myself. But these are a few things that Scripture teaches us and my experience has helped me with. And the first thing is to remember that it's an exercise of faith. The gift of the Spirit himself is a gift like the gift of the work of grace. Striving to earn it will not help. We have to accept the gift. But like the gift of faith, we also have to use it. Like faith itself, the power of the Spirit in our prayer is given like a muscle and it will wither through lack of exercise. That's the first thing. The second is that we need desire. We need to try and match the desire of the Holy Spirit in us. This may be a gift, but we have to want it. In our Gospel reading, Jesus pointed out that the kingdom of God is something that can be desired more than anything else in the world. The merchant sells everything to get the pearl of great price. And so it is with our prayers. We must desire it above all else. It is our means of growth and our power of action in the kingdom of God on earth. It is the atmosphere of the kingdom and we must desire it as we desire to breathe. Thirdly, we must use the word. We must use scripture. To see the importance of praying in scripture and using scripture, look no further than Jesus' example. He used scripture constantly in his prayers. He was embedded in scripture. We have a wonderful synergy here. The the word of God inspired by the Spirit can be used by the indwelling Spirit in our prayers, in our communication with God. can be used to present our thoughts and desires, our hopes and fears. So we must use the word. Fourth thing is we need openness to God. We need to learn to use prayer as listening and worship. We have to learn to give our prayers and our prayer times to God. 
Tori Ten Boom said this, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. She was referring to an attitude to all we possess, and that includes prayer. When you pray, do you see it like bringing an agenda to a meeting? Of course we must be jealous of our prayer times, of our prayer life. We must guard them. But if we keep hold of our prayers too tightly, we risk hampering the work of the Spirit. We need to open our hearts to give prayer as worship. The inarticulate yearnings that are talked about in verse 27 are inarticulate. Don't try and make them articulate. We need to be open. And when God speaks, we must listen. And that may not be in words either. And finally, we must pray, and pray more. Like Jesus, if we are to pray to glorify God, to fulfill God's desires and purposes for us and for the world, then we are to have a life of prayer. Now, that's not necessarily the same as having a life of prayers. Some are called to that. But most of us aren't. But we are called to a life of prayer. And in this case, practice can't make perfect, obviously, here on earth. But unless we practice prayer, we cannot expect the Trinity to get fully involved in our lives. God does not go where uninvited. And our prayers are an invitation. The more we invite, the more we practice prayer the more the love of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit will infect and inhabit our prayers and our lives. Amen.